just because you have the exact same disease as, as your friend, your sibling, my stepsister, my brother, one of my brothers and I all have the same rare disease. We get, she passed away, but we all got different treatments and different things helped us. So you have to find what's right for you as an individual. And that's why now I advocate for individualized care because just because you can Google it, it might give you a path to go down, but it doesn't mean that it's the treatment and, and things that you want because it worked for 10 of your friends. That's a N of 10. You need to be an N of one. What is the best thing for you in discussing that with your team of healthcare providers to get the best outcomes and you can live the best life that you want to live by treating yourself as an individual. And you can use those community resources and networks as a resource, as a support, someplace to find hope that, hey, if that person can find hope, there's hope for me too. But it doesn't mean to do the exact same things as every single other person with the same disease. Hello, good day, greetings, wherever you are in this beautiful world. Thank you for joining True Hope Cast, which is the official podcast of True Hope Canada. Here at True Hope Canada, we are a mind and body based supplement company that is dedicated first and foremost to promoting brain and body health through non-invasive nutritional means. For more information about us, you can visit truehopecanada.com. If you're new to the podcast, please consider subscribing. Today, I welcome Barbie Engel to the podcast. Now, Barbie is a best-selling author. She is a reality TV personality and lives with multiple rare and chronic diseases. Barbie is a chronic pain educator, patient advocate, and president of the International Pain Foundation. She is also a motivational speaker and best-selling author on pain topics. Her blog, reality shows and media appearances are used as a platform to help her become an e-patient advocate. She presents at healthcare conferences, speaking publicly, sharing her story and educating and advocating for patients all across the world. Today, Barbie and I are going to discuss chronic disease and hope. Enjoy the show. Okay, welcome to the show, Barbie. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. How are you? What is going well? I am doing good. I'm excited to be here. And uh, what's going well is I'm preparing for our biggest awareness month of the year, which is in November. And I pretty much prepare all year round for that one month of activities while I'm doing other activities. But I'm really excited to be seeing it all come together and uh, am ready to present it to the world. Wonderful. Well, as an introduction, can you just let us know who you are and what it is that you do, please? Absolutely. I am a best-selling author on chronic pain topics, and I've published nine books, and I am also serving as the president of the International Pain Foundation, and I am currently a beauty pageant title holder, Mrs. Southwest Petite. So I have quite a variety of things that I'm involved in, but everything revolves around living with chronic and rare diseases for myself. All right. Well, I just want to jump straight in and talk about chronic pain. It's obviously a big topic and I'm not sure if people who don't have chronic pain can really understand what chronic pain is. They can probably understand what pain is, but chronic constant you know, pain, like, you know, it, it sounds awful, but no. So I'd love to talk a bit about more about that. So for those who haven't really experiences, experienced that and who can't really relate, what has been, what has been your experience with chronic pain? What's that been like? It's been very challenging. <laughs> and it is something chronic implies everlasting. It goes on and on. And uh, I first 
was dealing with chronic pain at the age of 26 with endometriosis. And I went through treatments and surgery and thought I conquered the world. I'm ready to take on the world. And then I developed a rare disease, reflex sympathetic dystrophy. And that was a whole new level of pain, a different kind of pain. Uh, if you've not experienced chronic pain, it, say you've had something acute, just imagine not that not being able to stop or go away. Like I've sprained an ankle before. That's nothing compared to chronic pain because that ankle will heal and then you get better. When you have a disease and there's thousands of diseases that involve chronic pain, if you have a disease that involves chronic pain, it's just never ending. And so learning how to navigate the system is the hard part. And nobody teaches us. Nobody taught me how to get through that. So uh, it literally changed every single aspect of my life and uh, basically overtook my life. And my job became getting the best care I could and finding the right care for me and finding the right medical providers for me. And uh, my whole focus in life changed. What was your experience with the medical system with, with a rare condition and chronic pain? It absolutely was very difficult to get a diagnosis. It took me 43 doctors to get a proper diagnosis. So the first 42, I learned each of them was looking at an individual part of me and who I was, and they weren't looking at the whole me that was presenting in front of them. But I also learned I wasn't speaking their language. So they weren't able to help me because I didn't know what to say or, or how to get through that uh, doctor appointment or doctor appointments. And that 43rd doctor was the first one to stop. He asked for all of my other medical records to, for all the visits I had gone to before him. And he looked over all of that for a couple of weeks. And then I went in for my appointment and he had a better understanding of what was going on and how it was all involved and, and was able to put me on the right path to get the right diagnosis. And then it's still, even though I got that proper diagnosis after three years and 42 other doctors, he still was not able to treat me effectively because it's a rare disease. And there's about 7,000 rare diseases, about 5% of them have a treatment and um, most of them are not known. So he was able to diagnose me, but he wasn't able to fully treat me. And it took another four years to get proper treatment for the rare disease. So um, it, it was quite the challenge. And on average, somebody sees about eight doctors with a rare disease before they get diagnosed. For me, it was, uh, you know, 42 got it wrong before the right doctor saw my records and got it right. Wow. So like, so those 30, 42 doctors beforehand, what did they do that the 43rd didn't? Was it just like you were going into see a new doctor and then they would just treat you the same every time, like very, like quickly listen to your symptoms and that, that was kind of it. And then they came up to no conclusion. Like that happened 42 times. Yeah. Or they came up to the wrong conclusion. They would, if it was a long doctor, they would concentrate on what my lungs were doing. Okay. If it was a heart doctor, they would just look at my heart. Um, ear, nose and throat doctor was, was, I was saying I'm having trouble swallowing. Well, it turns out that the small nerves weren't firing in my throat. And so I was choking on food, no matter how good I chewed the food, I was still choking. They were looking at each individual symptom that was happening in their own area of expertise. So they didn't go outside of that. Uh, and, and I even, one was a neurologist. He said, I think what's wrong is you have large boobs and you need to have a breast reduction. 
And if you get a breast reduction, it will fix everything that's wrong with you. And that was absolutely wrong. But that was the 42nd doctor <laughs> and that I went to it was a plastic surgeon to have my boobs removed because I was going to do anything they could offer me to try to help me, even though they were only looking at specific parts of me. And I wasn't helping them. Like I said, I was just going in crying and saying, fix me, help me. And I wasn't giving them adjectives. They need adjectives to describe the type of pain you're having. They need to know what's there's other systems that are involved. It may seem bizarre and like it's not interconnected, but for me, all the different systems of my body with this rare disease are interconnected. And I would have gotten help, I think sooner if I, as a patient went in with adjectives to describe the pain I was feeling and the symptoms I was going through, as well as uh, explained more to them. If, you know, if they said, I'm just a lung doctor, I don't need to know about the rest. They actually did need to know about the rest. What would you do differently? Now you've obviously had all of that experience, like going into those, going into those doctor's appointments. Obviously this could be advice for somebody who's also, you know, struggling with the like own self-investigation, trying to find a diagnosis or just some answers or being point, pointed in the right direction. What advice would you give to people who are, you know, are also like really struggling to kind of crack through and find the right right doctor for them that's going to kind of take the time and ask those ask those key questions i would say go in with a plan i now when i go to a doctor appointment especially a first-time doctor i will bring a one pager that gives a brief synopsis of of what i've gone through and it says these are the issues i'm here for these are questions that i've thought of to ask you because a lot of times we get in the doctor's office and it's like a vortex you forget sure what you want to say, or the doctor has their own specialty. So they lead you down a certain path. Make sure you go in prepared and ready to, to have a conversation and you get your questions answered. And also know that if that doctor is says, this is the only treatment that there is, or this is the only thing I can offer you, that there's other providers out there that have other treatments. Don't feel like you have to get pigeonholed. There was times I had a doctor say, if I don't take out your first rib, you will die. So they rushed me into surgery. I didn't ask questions. I, I just did what the doctors told me. Know that you can ask questions. Know that you can go in prepared and that you have this time to get done what you need done. And don't feel pressured to do treatments or take on options or take a medication that you're not comfortable with. Give yourself time to look it up unless you are in a life or death situation, take the time to research what you're, what you're experiencing and going through and ask those questions to the provider. Did you try any like natural health options or any complementary practitioners during that kind of like for, I mean, how, how, how long a time span is 42 doctors? It was three years, three years. Okay. So yes. in that three year period, um, there must've been times during the 20th, or the 30th doctor where you're just like you're go you're going through the same kind of procedure time and time again yes. um well that did you ever like think about like going into do natural options or just i'm not thinking about I'm not saying that going to see a chinese medicine doctor for example is going to um i cure did you or, yeah okay you did well that's cool well that's probably where i would go because one i i know for a fact with my personal experience that practitioner is going to look at the whole body and actually give you an appointment time that's probably more closer to two hours than 15 minutes right so right. that's a big change right there so tell us about your experience like with the, that three-year span 
with uh, like you know, dabbling in you know complementary alternative medicines a lot of the complementary options that i used were things that i had developed myself out of necessity and even when i went to the uh, naturopathic doctors uh during that time they gave me time in their office but i was not organized as a patient and so i you know i would take what they would say but they weren't looking at at my blood they weren't looking at my x-rays or or that type of thing they were they were taking these these random symptoms that i was having with passing out and vertigo and having trouble swallowing and you know they they would offer things like, like oh you can try this tea well now 20 years later i have a totally different approach to what i'm doing and a lot of it is naturopathic uh, terms and, and treatments and options. However, at the time I didn't know how to utilize that time in their office to take it home and put into my everyday life. But some of the things I did learn was, was use, uh, paper plates instead of dishes. Cause I kept having trouble with dystonia and dropping things. So I was breaking dishes. I was breaking glasses and, uh, drink cups and, um, so they said, you know, switch to paper plates. They gave me some tools that I could use in my everyday life. Um, one of them gave me a neck pillow that um, when I'm lay when I'm sleeping, I can put it underneath my um, my neck, back of my neck, or the side of my neck that is fitted to my neck, and it helps me sleep with my with my neck in the proper position so that the spinal fluid can flow properly. Because just having your spinal fluid not flow properly is a life challenge like it can bring on other symptoms that you're not even relating or expecting so things like that were helpful i didn't understand the why around what i was doing or how to talk to any type of medical professional so it it literally was going doctor to doctor to doctor and some appointments were really fast i had a doctor walk in the room and he said i know what you're trying to do and you're not going to get away with it and he turned around and walked out of the room he did not examine me. He did not look at me. He did not talk to me just based off of the paperwork that I filled out before he came in the room, a few pages. He walked in and said that and left. And when I ordered my medical records, he said he gave me an EMG and he did all these things with me that he didn't do. With the naturopathic doctors, they would give me things that I could do that weren't medications or medical procedures and incorporate those into my life. Um, I did not necessarily understand the the value of what they were trying to, the tools they were trying to instill in me. It's, but it, I relate that to like in ballet, when when you're you're young and you do a ballet class, they talk about posture and making sure you're aligned and your walk is correct and, and all of these things. I didn't realize how important it was, these tools that I was being given and how to incorporate them into my life to say, okay, it doesn't correct the rare disease that I'm living with, but it does help me have more energy pennies in a day. It does help me live more life. And so I was searching for a magic pill, <laughs> like this one pill, take this pill and you're cured. And there's no such thing. I had to take all of the tools and use them and incorporate them into my life to live a better life. So it, it was um, a educational for me, but also educational for them. And they didn't know anything about the rare disease I was living with. 
So they're giving me general suggestions, but not anything that was specifically helping with the rare disease. It was yeah, it's life. It's wild, right? I mean, that doctor you were just mentioning, that doctor clearly needs a doctor. Um, <laughs> but yeah, um, did. <laughs> yeah, when I just when I just think about those those types of practitioners, like you know, so I'm a holistic nutritionist, and my initial intake is 90 minutes. Sometimes goes on for a couple of hours, and yes, I so many. I want to say half i don't know maybe a couple of dozen of individuals will come in and talk to me and they just have digestive issues and it would be mixed between what people might have but i would have a big yeah. section in my intake form that i would go through with them personally like about their digestion and like how they eat what they eat what like mental state they're in when they eat and then have an, and then talk about their stress levels what's the most stressful thing that, that they do and like how that affects their body and how that manifests for them and then also like about work right so like there was probably 26 people who had the same kind of problem you know they either skip breakfast altogether or they had it like while driving to work or they would have it like in their most stressful state during the day like getting to work rushed and then they wondered why like their bowel movements were all over the place and they wondered why they never digested any food and why they were like not not energized during the day and then just by slow just making them aware of that and like explaining to them how the digestive system works and how you need to be kind of chilled out and calm to digest their food you wouldn't be able to give that type of advice or even have that investigative process as a practitioner if you don't have more than enough time to go over that type of information with somebody and also like i mean you as a patient could certainly like take that investigation yourself and kind of self-assess yourself and find those things but when you're so close to it right you're so close to the pain you're so close to the diagnosis it can be really difficult but when you've got somebody who's trained as a health professional and somebody who um, is independent from your own experience it can certainly certainly help so yeah Absolutely. that sounds like an important part of the investigative process and i just i just have a question in regards just just to maybe help other people who might be going through this process of like going doctor to doctor and just not getting anywhere and not getting any answers. Um, it, was there a level, I just want to wonder, I wonder like what was your like primary motivation and if that changed from like doctor one to doctor 43, like, cause it sounds like, are you just looking to remove your pain? Are you like obsessed with this idea of a diagnosis? Are you yeah. looking for just this one pill? Like what was the like, the motivation that was getting you through that 43 doctors because it sounds like you could have put yourself in a better like mental frame to be like prepared and to like learn from each doctor to go forward do you know what i mean and just like obviously yeah. for you retrospectively looking back like how differently do you think you could have like um had your goals prepared i assume that every doctor was equal in the same. <laughs> and I didn't recognize that each doctor had their own specialty. And my goal was to stop the pain. I had all these other symptoms going on, but to me, the worst was the burning fire pain I was, I was dealing with. And I just wanted to get that under control. And, um, I, I, in that time, I realized that these doctors are seeing me for these short periods of time. But I had to be responsible for myself as a patient in between appointments to be able to improve my life. And that it wasn't going, a doctor was the tool or a nurse practitioner or physical therapist, counseling. I went to, to um, counseling as well for mental health. And I 
realize that those are tools, but I have to be the one to step up and take control. And by the 43rd doctor, I was at the point of, I have to do something different. And I, each time I was learning and trying to do something different, but I never got there till that 43rd doctor. And looking back, I could have done it sooner. I had a, a Canadian friend who did um, uh, microbiome testing and um, she got her results back and said, this was absolutely life-changing. I think you should do this. There was, there was times when I would be constipated for like seven to nine days. The longest I was constipated was 21 days. And I was hospitalized during part of that time. Even the hospital nurses didn't want to have to deal with my constipation. And, and so they were okay with me staying constipated for all that time. By the time I got to my primary care doctor, who's a DO and said, um, I have not had a bowel movement in 21 days. He had an x-ray of my abdomen and he's like, you are full of feces. You have to go to the bathroom. We have to address this and look at this. But people it, along the health system weren't wanting to deal with those kind of challenges. So I, and I didn't want to talk about it. So we're just pushing it aside versus what is happening in my microbiome and, and how can I address this? Getting those results, I've totally changed my diet, which has lowered my kidney stones. Um, uh, seizure disorder is, is improved um, to the point I, I still have um, some seizures, but I used to have them more often. Now I have maybe uh, one a year and um, those are triggered by lights and light patterns versus what I'm eating and the migraines and that type of thing. Um, so really it, it all came down to me taking responsibility and using what the education and, and expertise of the medical practitioners I was seeing as a tool instead of an end all be all. Well, in regards to like a community or like, I was just thinking about like, you know, if you have a, if you have a group of symptoms or you've just got chronic pain, you're going to go on Google, you're going to search stuff, right? You're going to try and connect with people and look for answers. Like, what was that like as a, like trying to find communities and groups of people to like help you, you know, understand well, maybe what was going on for you? I, that's why I started writing books because it was the new age. When I first got sick, I was 29 years old. Um, didn't really use the internet much. It was a new thing. <laughs> now it's a normal thing to go out and find community and find people with like symptoms and Google things and say, Hey doctor, could it be this? Um, when I, when I did go to one of the, the doctors and say, Hey, my stepsister has this rare disease and we're comparing symptoms. And it sounds very similar to what she's going through. He told me hundred percent. I didn't have it. it. Never tested me for it. He just said hundred percent. You don't have it. And he just wasn't an, an expert in that area. He didn't recognize what was happening or the symptoms of it or that type of thing or, and, or he didn't want to treat it. He wanted to treat something else, but that, that particular healthcare professional gave me six EMGs, which shows large nerve fiber injuries. It would never show what I live with RSD. It would never show that. So it really was a miscommunication all the way around. Um, and, and being able to now go and, and look things up can be supportive, but you can also get bad advice. Just because you have the exact same disease as, as your friend, your sibling, my stepsister, my brother, one of my brothers, and I all have the same rare disease. 
we get, she passed away, but we all got different treatments and different things helped us. So you have to find what's right for you as an individual. And that's why now I advocate for individualized care because just because you can Google it, it might give you a path to go down, but it doesn't mean that it's the treatment and, and things that you want because it worked for 10 of your friends. That's a N of 10. You need to be an N of one. What is the best thing for you in discussing that with your team of healthcare providers to get the best outcomes and you can live the best life that you want to live by treating yourself as an individual. And you can use those community resources and networks as a resource, as a support, someplace to find hope that, hey, if that person can find hope, there's hope for me too. But it doesn't mean to do the exact same things as every single other person with the same disease. Did you, in your experience of all these doctors, did you find like that there was like a pattern in regards to like, because I think I know quite a lot of doctors personally, and I've had experience with people, doctors who I don't know, but I want to say the ones that I don't know personally, there's a big like ego, there's a massive ego part of being a doctor, right? Like, I, I think it just kind of goes with the territory, right? Like it's a, no, it's a, you know, it's a very important job and you go through a lot of training and education and you know, there's, there's certainly a lot of societal status that comes with being a doctor. Um, I don't know if that is as much valid now as it is when it used, you know, when oh, yes. maybe, maybe like 30, 40 years ago, but like your experience, you were just, you know, you, you, you spoke earlier about a doctor who wouldn't, didn't even see you and then like, kind of just li- like lied. So yes. that's a problem. And what about like these other doctors that kind of like ruled you out or just like got things wrong or said, this is this, you've got this or you definitely don't have that. Like I think definitely, I think having definites in anything is, is not very, very, is not very helpful whatsoever. So like, did you ever experience with a doctor who didn't really have that like egocentric viewpoint on, and, or someone who like didn't, like, oh, you know, actually, this is very interesting. I don't know the answer to this, but like, let's do this test and this test and find out. I wonder if that's quite a rare experience. I've had that experience, but it is rare. Uh, my primary care doctor has been with me for almost 20 years, and he is very, very open to anything I bring him and want to try. And he's told me that me doing the research and coming in and teaching him has helped him treat other patients that have rare diseases. Some have my disease, some have other diseases, but it opened up his eyes and the whole process, him seeing me go through all of the challenges that I have has, has um, helped him practice better and lose that ego. But I've also had um, the doctor who took out my first rib. I had five lung collapses. One was a full collapse and four partial collapses after his rib removal surgery. And his ego got in the way. He did not want to admit that there could be something wrong after surgery. And he said, some people spontaneously have pneumothoraxes after surgery. And he did not want to look for the why. And I ended up going to Colorado from Arizona to Colorado uh, to see a different doctor who did a 3D scan of my body. And he immediately saw that the first doctor had made a mistake and he left two bone spurs. One was hooked into my lung, which is why I kept having lung collapses. And the other one was hooked around my brachial plexus nerve bundle. So I did this surgery to save my life, which turns out I didn't need in the first place. And then that had complications. And now I have complications with my 
right lung being weaker and blebs on my lung and having to have um, surgery, a uh, second surgery to finish the rib removal that he did not complete. So, um, but he didn't want to admit that he could have made a mistake to yeah. look and see. From that, when he recommended that surgery, do you think, looking back now, did you think you advocated for yourself no. well enough? Did you ask enough questions? You just went with what he said. I went with what he said, and he said, you need this surgery. And I said, okay. And I was in surgery within five days. Never asked a question. I fully, wholeheartedly believed that I needed that surgery, and he knew what he was talking about. And, um, you know, I, I did have faster constriction. I did have um, neurogenic thoracic outlet syndrome, but to remove my rib was because I have this rare disease it was, that none of us knew at that time, but I had all these other symptoms going on. He never even took those into consideration. And, and I went from having RSD or symptoms in my face, neck, shoulder, and arm to having full body symptoms with organ involvement and, uh, ended up, you know, wheelchair bound for seven years and on the wrong path. So it really should have been me asking, speaking up and, and me realizing, I wish that as a child, somebody taught me how to go to a doctor appointment and what that process would be like. So that when I was in a chronic situation, that it would have been easier for me. I could have done preventative. I would have understood the preventative. It wouldn't just be a ballet dancer saying you need to have good posture to, to do proper technique for ballet, but you need to have good posture to be a fully functioning human being. And the importance of that as you age and as you go, go and grow through life to overcome other challenges or prevent other challenges from ever being a part of your life. Yeah. I think that power dynamic between patient and doctor is, is interesting because at the end of the day, the doctor's working for you. And, you know, if they're not asking a lot of questions and if they're not investigating and they're not like taking the time to like even even like look at you and, you know, you know, give you that attention with their body language and speech and everything like that's obviously very, very important. But you will come across doctors that that don't really have that be that maybe they're having a terrible day or they're just a terrible person or they're just a terrible doctor. But it sounds like you know, if you're going to give advice to other people who are looking to looking for answers, they're also looking to advocate for their own health that you know it's okay to say no it's okay to ask questions it's okay to get second opinions and you can be like so brilliantly prepared for a doctor's appointment but at the end of the day you just might be finding the wrong doctor so it sounds like finding the right doctor is is probably just as important as like having the right questions absolutely and your doctor doesn't necessarily have to know about your rare disease to give you good treat treatment and good options they have to be willing to learn and grow and and check out what's coming down the pipeline, what's available, ask questions when they go for their continuing education. If you can find doctors that will do that with you and have you be a part of your team instead of you being the center and then all these providers trying to help you, you have to be an active participant. And when you do that, even if it's starting as the wrong doctor or that doctor doesn't necessarily know you, you can build a relationship and learn and grow together to get what you need done and accomplished so that you can live the best life you can live. What do you think doctors could do better? Say you've got these 43 doctors um, in a room and you're standing up on stage and you're giving them a presentation about your three years and you're going through it. 
you've got th- like maybe three, four bullet points of like, this is what I, this is how I feel you can better serve um, me again. If I come, you know, if someone like me comes into your doctor's clinic, what would you say? Be open about what options you have available. If you're not willing to add a new option, speak up to the patient. Don't, don't say to the patient, this is all there is say, this is all I can do. And, and be, let your ego go a little bit and say, you should see this other provider or um, somebody else might be able to help you more or offer you something different. Don't lie and say, this is the only treatment. And, or, you know, I, I had a doctor didn't want to tell me I had gastroparesis, which is secondary to RSD in a lot of patients, not all, but a lot. And he didn't want to tell me that. And I said, put it in writing. Can you put it in writing that I do not have gastroparesis so I can take that to my primary care doctor and we can look at some other options. And, and I waited in his, his waiting room and he ended up writing a letter to my doctor saying that I had gastroparesis and he didn't want to be the one to tell me maybe because he didn't want to have to treat me. He wanted to do surgeries and what I needed was a change in my diet and, and a, a new way to approach it. And he wasn't willing to go down that path. So he was trying to push me off. Just be open and honest is number one. And then when you have some tools, if you don't have enough time in your in your um, appointment with the patient, maybe give us some handouts or things that we can go look up for ourselves, tips and tools that we can do on our own in between doctor appointments so that we can better our daily living. That would be very helpful and it will keep us coming back to you and you will make more money because then we'll be like this Dr. A is a great doctor and they don't have all the answers, but they're willing to help out or willing to give me some tools that I can do on my own to help myself out. And that makes all the difference in a relationship with the patient and and provider. Wow. Yeah, that's good advice. Um, I mean, you're obviously in the States, I'm in Canada and, you know, rare diseases and things that aren't conventional can end up like, you know, costing you money out of pocket. You know, my youngest son's got like a pretty rare disease condition and um you know like the a lot of the, med, the lot of the medication i have to pay we have to pay for ourselves over here and some of the other treatments and you know this will this will probably go on for for the rest of his life and it's like you know life life is life is expensive like right now so like you know we i have to like we have to budget for like his condition so it's you know it's it's tricky so what's your your experience with the rare disease and you've probably got connections with other people who have had rare diseases as well you've got some in your family what mm-hmm. you know, what's your experience with with, with like the, the monetary side to that that you have to budget even in even in america no matter where you are I've, i talk to patients all over the world and i have some very close friends that are rare disease patients in canada and it, it no matter where you live it's something that you have to pay attention to you have to you have to budget come up with uh, ways that you can um, get the care that you need. And it sometimes takes creativity, negotiating. I know in Canada, the system is a, is a lot different. And some of my rare disease friends, you, they, they can get a doctor appointment, but it'll be, you know, months out or, uh, you know, they, they get that time with the doctor and then their follow-up is months later. And it's not putting them on a, a path to success living with the rare disease financially look for is especially in the United States, we have copay relief funds that you can look for that do disease specific and or general funds that help pay for medications. Um, 
You can reach out to the manufacturers of the medications and see what kind of programs they have. They're different in every country. So it's not like a blanket one size fits all for your country, but reach out and find out what they offer patients in your countries um, as to what options you have. And then knowing that rare disease especially affects the entire family, everything that the patient goes through, the caregivers, providers, family members go through, except for the physical aspects of the condition, but the emotional, mental, financial aspects, social aspects, everybody in the family is affected and knowing and understanding that can help you support each other and say, okay, dad, mom, sister, brother, you need a break from rare disease. Go out and do something for yourself. Take the time that you need for yourself because just like when you're on an airplane and the oxygen falls down and they say, put your own oxygen on first, you can't continually give the rare disease patient the, the attention or help or hope or tools that they need if you don't take care of yourself first, or you'll end up in a, in a similar chronic situation. And then you're paying for two people in the family or, or if it's hereditary, multiple people and, and not just physically, but also financially, also spiritually, emotionally, mental health wise. So take the time for yourself to, take care of yourself before you help the patient. Yeah, I think that's very important. Obviously, these things can be financially expensive, but without question, psychologically expensive and physically expensive as well. So if you're not keeping an eye on that and uh, budgeting for that time as well, is very, very important. So I appreciate that. That's that was awesome. Um, how do you think people can start? How, how do you think people can find hope within like those quite dark times, you know, especially during doctor after doctor and you know you're just not kind of getting anywhere and it's you know the, the system's frustrating you and it's you're seemingly like going nowhere like you know i i genuinely feel like if people were to you know, really stick with it and you know hold themselves with you know, gratitude and uh, then those things will eventually come but like there are going to be points along the way where you just feel hopeless i'm sure with 43 doctors i'm sure there were multiple times where you just you know thought it was going to go nowhere and i i two things one is i approach things as a cheerleader i was a cheerleader since the age of four and uh, my dad would ask me when i would be down on the field at a football game he'd say you're losing 50 to zero how are you still down there smiling and and when i became chronically ill i was still smiling and i think that hope is what got me through and through and even the smallest glimmer of hope on the days when my hope was the lowest i still had a flicker of a small flame of hope that was burning but to me i changed what my win was and changing my mindset helped me get through the toughest times so when i would say you know we're losing 50 to zero maybe we'll score and maybe we won't lose 50 to zero maybe in the last second of the game we'll get a, a touchback and get three points and all of a sudden it'll be 50 to three and that would be my new win so i would change what win meant to me and then so i did that in cheerleading and i transformed that into a mental cheerleader type of view so that helped me through and then one of the first counselors I saw gave me an, an assignment that um, go home and do this homework assignment. And this has gotten me, I think the furthest personally, and it's called the I am 
And what he had me do was go home and write down all the things I am. And at this time, I had lost my job. I lost my marriage of 10 years. I didn't know where I was going to live. Like literally the world was crumbling around me and I'm going from doctor to doctor because I would not have given up the life I had. I worked hard to create the life I had. And the, a couple of days later, he called me and said, uh, your appointment's coming up in a few more days. I just want to see how your homework's coming. And I said, I suck. <laughs> I have nothing I, I have nothing to write down and he helped me get my list started. And by the time I got to his office, I had about 50 I am's written down. And then by the time I left that appointment, I had 75 I am's and now I have over 150 I am's. He helped me see that you can be two contradicting things at the same time. And that, um, that's still part of you. And just because I can't physically be a cheerleader anymore, doesn't mean that I can't mentally be a cheerleader. Again, reframing what I'm doing and and who I am and seeing that what I do isn't who I am. And, you know, I, I'm bubbly, I'm bright, I, I'm vivacious, I'm outgoing. So when I'm having my low hope moments, I go back to my I am list, which I have printed out still all these years later. And I go back and read my I am's and remind myself of the things that make me up. Even if I cannot be all of those things right now in this moment, they are still a part of me. And that gives me hope. That's awesome. Therefore, I am hopeful. <laughs> That's great. I like that I am. That's great. Um, what are some of the treatment options that you've experienced that have like worked with helping with chronic pain? You know, um, obviously not, maybe not like, a cure but like there's got to be some things that people can that can, people can do and have access to or they can you know try for themselves or can you give me some examples sure some of the non-invasive things that i wish i had tried from the start uh vr virtual reality very helpful mindfulness um meditation uh prayer um uh mirror therapy uh, I've also done some more invasive things like stem cell therapy, and uh, I do infusion therapy three to four times a year with uh, a medication an anesthetic called ketamine, and that not only helps with the chronic pain that I live with and help put out the burning fire pain, it's not a cure, I come in and out of remission, but um, it also helps with depression, so um, very useful for both. And um, I've also uh, worked with a neuroscientist, a few different neuroscientists at, at different universities. Um, but uh, the one that created this device for me, it's called an oral orthotic. Um, it helps lower neuroinflammation in the spine and brain. It's a, it's a device that fits over your teeth and holds your jaw in place. Uh, your jaw has lots of nerves that run through it. And it's like kinking a water hose when you can unkink it and put your jaw in proper position. It helps you um, get proper flow to your brain of signals, chemicals, and all the things that you need. And um, that helps with chronic pain. Uh, Diclofenac, which is, it was on prescription only here in America. Um, I'm not sure in Canada if it's prescription only, um, but it's over the counter here now. And I use Diclofenac. Um, and I've been able to get off of pain medication, but I have used pain medication um, on a daily basis for quite a few years. And I was able to get off of that using these other treatment modalities uh, in combination with each other and um, been able to get off opioid therapy. 
So, uh, but I have done that. And um, it, again, all of them take the edge off. The thing, the ones that helped the most for me um, that I saw significant improvement, like wheelchair to walking was ketamine infusions and the oral orthotic help with proprioception, balance coordination, um, as well as lowering neuroinflammation uh, throughout my entire body. So, um, which is also non-invasive to, to put that device once it's made for you on your teeth. Um, that's been very helpful. And I used to have to do it all day and night, 24 hours a day. I kept it in even to eat. I had them build teeth onto it so I could eat with it. <laughs> um, but I've progressed to a point where I need it sometimes during the day and I wear it every single night to sleep. Wow. There's some fantastic options there. And it sounds like there are some universities or doctors, scientists mm -hmm. out there, like, you know, really trying to create using a combination of like, you know, natural therapies and pharmaceuticals and even technology to help um, people's experience with pain. So that's awesome. How, um, how can people connect with you and, you know, check out some of these books that you've written and, and if they've got questions, maybe like, where can you direct them? Absolutely. My website, my personal website is barbieingle.com. Barbie ends with a Y, Ingle starts with an I. And, um, and then also as the president of International Pain Foundation, you can go to internationalpain.org and see information, uh, tips, tools, tricks, as well as resources for over 150 different conditions that involve chronic pain and some of the options that are available for those conditions and, and getting some relief and or treatment and um, better your daily living. So please check that out as well. Wonderful. Well, I'll make sure those links, the internationalpain.org, bobbyingle.com and your Facebook as well. Like I'll make sure they're all connected in the show notes, but thank you so much for coming onto the show today to talk about chronic pain and your experiences with uh, conventional medicine and that, that whole invest investigative process. I think that um, information like this can help people save a lot of money, a lot of time, a lot of energy and a lot of tears. So thank you so much for sharing that with us today. Absolutely. Thank you, Simon. So glad to be here. And everybody listening, go right now and rate this podcast five stars wherever you're listening from and let Simon know how awesome and motivating and hopeful this podcast is. And don't just listen to this episode, listen to all of them so that you get your dose of hope. Well, love that. I don't have to do the sign off now. That was beautiful. Thanks for the plug there. That was great. Appreciate it. Well, thank you again, Bob. Really appreciate your time today. Um, and I will make sure everyone gets connected up with you. But that is it for this episode of True Hope Cast, the official podcast of True Hope Canada. We'll see you next week.